Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to have Kat Arney back on the podcast today for the second time. She first appeared on episode 33, where we talked about a number of things, including her career at Cancer Research UK, epigenetics, her art of storytelling and science, and of course, given the the time of year, we talked about COVID-19. In that episode, we also teased her next book, uh, which is called Rebel Cell, which is now out in the UK. Um, and it will be out in the U.S. on the 29th of September. Uh, I've had the pleasure to read it, and it was it was so good, and it was incredibly expansive in the topics that it covered. So both the the long history of our understanding of cancer as a human disease, but also the breadth of the animal and, and plant and unicellular kingdoms and their relationship to cancer. Um, so I'm really excited to, to digging into it, learning more about how the book came out and talking about it a little bit. Um, so Kat, thank you so much for, for joining me today. And thank I'm looking you. forward to discussing. Yeah, it's just always a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you. Of course. So just to start off, I was curious, how, how did the book actually come about? I, I think you started in 2017, but it feels to me like it was a book that, you know, while it maybe took three years to write, it was a decade plus in the making because of the incredible breadth of, of research and, and interviews and, and just backstory from your work at Cancer Research UK that you had to do. So I was thinking about where did this book start? And this book actually, like the germ of it really started when I was doing my PhD. So this is Going back a long right. time, uh, probably over 20 years now. Uh, I know I'm older than I look, uh, but which is also on a podcast. No one can see how old I look. Um, <laughs> 25. But yeah, so this goes all the way back to my PhD, which was done in the Cancer Research UK Welcome Institute for Developmental Biology and Cancer Research in Cambridge, which is now the Gurdon Institute. And the whole idea there was to bring together researchers who were developmental biologists and cancer researchers. Because because basically the process of development of one cell, of life unfolding one cell to many in development, where this process all works normally and the genes are expressed at the right time and in the right place, the kind of corrupted version of that is cancer, where it's one cell to many in the most terrible, corrupted way. And this sort of process of, of evolution, of gene expression, all of that stuff is going wrong in cancer and going right in development. So for me, right from the very beginning of my scientific training, I was on the developmental biology side, but it was always really clear to me that these are mirror image processes and that it's it's the kind of the same stuff. So I've always had this really sort of intuitive connection between the normal processes of development and then the aberrant processes of cancer. And then when I went to work at Cancer Research UK, throughout the time I was there, I was there for about 12 years from 2004 to 2016, which was through the most incredible period in cancer genetics, you know, all through like the GWAS finding all these headlines that said like scientists find another 20 genes for breast cancer. And it's like, yeah, they're, they're snips, but we don't want to explain that. But, you know, uh, all that kind of thing. So through that era, whereas finding all the genes and then getting into whole genome sequencing, the work that was coming out, looking at whole tumor genomes and understanding sort of mutations and, and finding all this stuff and the era of really targeted precision medicine starting to come to fruition with drugs like, you know, things like vermorafenib, the EGFR inhibitors, the IBS and the ABS all really starting to come through. So it was it was this really incredible time of seeing all this work on the genetic side of things. But then it sort of 
then this new story started to emerge, I guess, around kind of 2012 to 2014, where people, the technology advanced to the point where you could really start digging into the, the heterogeneity within tumours. So um, you know, the work of people like Charlie Swanton and even, you know, 40 years ago, the work of people like Peter Knoll going like, tumors are heterogeneous. They're a patchwork of mutated cells. You can't just like lump it all together and say everything's the same in there. And understanding the depth of that heterogeneity and the evolution of tumors as they grow, as they develop and as they respond to treatment and are selected for by treatment. That really started to blow my mind and and seeing cancer as this developmental process and evolutionary process that is the dark side of life. You know, evolution is what gives us the diversity of life on Earth. Development is what makes us who we are. And you take all those processes and you use them for dark ends. And that is cancer. But I, this, so the germ of this idea of this book, you know, let's look at this kind of alternative story about cancer started while I was at CRUK, but for sort of various conflicts of interest reasons, it wasn't the first book that I was able to write. So the first book I wrote was Herding Hemingway's Cats, which was all about all of genetics. So uh, so this time I'm narrowing it down to just, you know, all of cancer. And uh, and that's really where the sort of genesis came from. <laughs> I, I love how all of cancer is uh, is yeah. a sufficiently narrow topic. I, I mean, I, I do think one of, of the... Of genetics. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, which is a subset of of all of science. Uh, I I felt so when I op when I first got the book, I naively assumed that it was going to be quite human focused. Um, but actually, it was really cool. The first probably half of the book is all about the you know this Faustian bargain of by being multicellular, you kind of necessarily invite an opportunity for cancer. So you go through all kinds of, you know, animal analogs, plant analogs, understandings from an evolutionary perspective. I'm, I'm interested in hearing about, and obviously that ties in to the, one of the takeaways, which, which I'll spoil a little bit, which is that um, we have to think of cancer as an, as an ecological system and, and not, like you said before, just as a, as a mutation. But I'm interested in why you decided to take that, that really wide arc of considering cancer across basically the whole tree of life before kind of diving into the, the, you know, the human perspective on it. I really wanted to set the scene in this book that cancer is not just a human disease and it's not just a modern disease, that it is intrinsically linked to life. And I think in the introduction, I say, you know, this isn't a book about cancer. It's a book about life. And that, you know, cancer is an emerging thing that emerges out of the system of a multicellular organism. And whether that is a human or a hydra, you know, one of the simplest organisms that's ever been found with cancer is a hydra, which is like a tiny tube of cells with tentacles on. It's only got three cell types. And there's been spontaneously occurring tumours found in these tiny organisms. And, you know, this is a very deep ancient disease with evolutionary roots. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to embed our understanding of cancer as an evolutionary phenomenon, as a biological phenomenon, as the dark side of life, is because I think the narrative of modern cancer has become like it's something that you did, or it was something bad in modern life. It's your toxic environment. It was your fault or the fault of something visited upon you that made this cancer happen. And 
you know, it's really time to challenge that. I mean, there are certainly, I've had people saying like, oh, you're just saying we should just give up and like, you know, just hit the fags and the booze. Um, I went, no, no, no. There are things we do that do not help, right? You know, yeah. do not add to your mutational burden, right? <laughs> you know, keep your tissues healthy because that will reduce your risk of developing cancer. But this idea that if only you did this and you didn't do that, then we would never have cancer as humans. But it's like, it's nonsense because almost every single branch of the tree of life has been shown to have cancer. And one of the books I really heavily drew on to research this is a, it's a book called The uh, Ecology and Evolution of Cancer. It's edited by Beata Ujvari and her colleagues, um, Fred Thomas and Ben Roche. And it's an incredible book. It's, it's an academic textbook, but there's like 20 pages in there of close, tiny type listing all the species where there are extant examples of cancer. And going back in the fossil record, you know, going back tens, hundreds of millions of years, uh, just the week my book came out, there was a, a dinosaur fossil, 77 million year old dinosaur fossil with an osteosarcoma, bone tumor. So it's like, this is a deep, ancient evolutionary disease. It's intrinsic to multicellular life. We can't avoid it. We can't escape it. There are things we do that don't help, of course, but this idea that if only you had done X, Y, Z, you know, followed my plan, done this, lived a perfect life, you would never have got your cancer. It, we must push back against that because this is a biological phenomenon that emerges out of multicellularity. Absolutely. I, I was wondering, I, I lost count of just how many fascinating animal exemplars there there were in the book i wonder if you'd be willing to share some of your favorites you already talked about the hydra but there there are some incredible ones obviously the naked mole rat many people have uh have heard of but there are quite a few others in there that are that are off the beaten path yeah so there's there's a few things that there's some strange animals that have got cancer and there's some strange animals that don't seem to have cancer and then there's some kind of curious examples of sort of cancer-like emergent phenomenon in animal populations. I'll come, come first to like the, the animals that do and don't get cancer. So, you know, almost every species that has been looked at does have examples of tumors in it. And so people say, oh, naked mole rats, they don't get cancer. It's like, there's a couple, couple of examples that they do. But you get this idea that um, there are some species where cancer is much less common. So there's this concept called Pito's paradox, which is it's quite obvious when you think about it. If you are a bigger, long-lived animal, you've got more cells, you've got more cell divisions through your life, it should be that you're more likely to develop cancer. But actually, the opposite is true. So big, long-lived animals are quite suppressive of cancer. And actually, humans are kind of somewhere in the middle, whereas very small, fast-lived animals, things like sort of rodents and, and smaller animals that live fast and die young, they're much more cancer-prone because, like, you know, why bother doing going to all this effort to reduce your risk of cancer if you're either going to get eaten in six months or make it to like a couple of years and then die? So, you know, there's these interesting biological solutions that different species have evolved their way to. You know, animals uh, like elephants, they have loads of copies of the P53 gene. Um, what's the, oh God, capybaras, that's the ones, the giant guinea pigs, right? They're really big among rodents. So you would expect them to have more cancers because they're rodents, but they've got really on point immune systems that munch up their, their damaged cells. Uh, things like Brand's bats, uh, bats are remarkably long-lived, partly because they can fly away, 
they don't get eaten so much, um, but they do something with their telomerase so they can replenish their telomeres. So all these species have kind of evolved their ways to different solutions, whether that's just don't bother living for very long or repair in different ways. So that's really interesting to think about, like how do different species yeah. experience cancer? But there are, there are two examples where there are species that just don't seem to get cancer. So one is comb jellyfish. I have no idea what their deal is. Um, and the other is sponges. And sponges are so interesting. They make all these weird molecules out of the chemicals in the sea. Uh, really interesting potential sources of cancer drugs and things like that. And there's a guy called Carlo Maley. He's a really eminent evolutionary cancer biologist in Arizona. And he's got all these little sponges that he's growing in the lab and just absolutely nuking the shit out of them with x-rays. Like that, that was his phrase, not mine. That's the scientific phrase. Um, and these sponges just don't get cancer. You can, you know, five grays of radiation kills a human. He's giving them like 700 grays and they're just fine. So that, that is kind of weird. You, uh, you interview Carlo as part of the book. How, I'd, I'd love to hear more about how these interviews came about because i also think that's one of the really distinctive things about the book is you don't just go and read a bunch of papers and summarize them but you have these what i presume are uh, you know multi-hour in-depth interviews with some of the leading scientists and and what i also like is that you go into some sometimes quirky details about their lives i, I don't remember who it was but uh one of them you talked about how he got onto uh, I think it might have been Bob Gattenby how he got onto his work because he didn't like cabbage and so he was studying some kind of moth <laughs> that did like cabbage but there's a, there's a lot of human color which I, I think is really great how did you decide to to take this approach to the book so for my first book Hemingway's Cats it was I, I mean more generally, I just love talking to people. I mean, you may have noticed I love talking. I love the sound of my own voice. But I also love talking with people about scientific ideas. It's like it's my happy place where I've, you know, I've read something, I've read their papers, I've thought about what they've got to say, and then I can really talk to them about it. And for me, that is just a joy. So for my first book, I in Hemingway's Cats, I was exploring like, how do our genes work? So I was like, right, I'm going to go around, ask all these people who are working in different areas of like gene expression, uh, gene regulation, you know, talk to me about your work. What do you think? I've got some ideas, but you know, I want to know what you think. And, you know, going around to all these amazing scientists and you just email them and say, I'm writing a book, uh, like to talk to you. And most of them just say, yeah, cool. You know? Um, so, and also I'm, someone who finds it hard to go on holiday. So my idea of a really great holiday is going around and talking to amazing scientists. So, you know, for my first book, I spent two weeks in the US talking to people. I got to go to Nice to, to meet um, Minnie Russell Zedigan, who's an amazing person, um, going up to Edinburgh to meet people like Bob Hill and Wendy Bickmore. Um, and then for this one, again, it's like, I want to do the same thing. I want to so I spent three weeks this time, it's like, ooh, slightly bigger budget, um, going to the US for this and, and just having amazing conversations with people. And the way I sort of picked them was like, well, yeah, who's, who's doing interesting things that kind of encapsulate the ideas that I'm trying to say? And then often someone would bounce you onto someone else. They're like, oh, you should really talk to, right. talk to so-and-so. But the, the privilege of being able to sit down with people like like Bob Weinberg, like Carlo, like uh, his wife, Athena Actipis, uh, like just incredible people. Kristen Swanson, who's a, a mathematician, who's a pref professor of neurosurgery in Arizona. Um, just incredible people was was a joy. 
I'd actually love to go a little bit more into the whole process. I've never written a book. Um, I imagine most of the people listening to the podcast also haven't written a book. You've written, I think, three now. Uh, so it'd be great to hear more about how you how do you arrive on a topic? How do you structure the how do you how do you structure the manuscript initially? How much does it change over time? What does a typical day look like? Do you go through periods of intense <laughs> writing, or do you kind of do it in, in trips over a multi-year period? So, um, uh, what does the process look like? Lots of drinking. Uh, so, I think <laughs> it's interesting that the processes have been different but similar for both my kind of main books. So, Herding Hemingway's Cats and this one, Rebel Cell, are kind of proper pop science books. The one in the middle, How to Code a Human, was more like a distillation of the stories in Herding Hemingway's Cat. So it's like, we, we don't really count that one. Um, it still took time. It still, were, still was a bit of painful drinking. But um, but yeah, so with Hemingway's Cats, that was an unusual one because I just had this idea I wanted to write a popular science book about gene regulation because I felt it had never really been done. And uh, when I went to Bloomsbury Sigma, they were looking for writers and they said, like, you know, what do you want to write about? And I was like, I don't know, genes. Uh, and so I, they were like, all right, um, write us a page. So I sort of sketched out, you know, I know, 14 chapter ideas that I thought would be interesting to cover about gene regulation. And they were like, I don't know, sounds all right. You know, come back to us with a book in two years. And if it's any good, we'll publish it. So that was slightly unorthodox when everyone's talking yeah. about, oh, you know, I, I had no advance for it. I kind of took it on. Trust right. almost that I would write a good book. Um, and so then I went away and started researching it. And that that whole structure just completely changed. It ch turned into, I think, 23 or 24 more small vignette chapters that all kind of strung themselves together to paint this picture. And um, and so, you know, I was writing very much like each chapter and then try is trying to thread all the ideas together in a way that makes sense that was quite hard for that one because I didn't start with a good plan. Um, right. This time round, I had a proper agent and I had to, had to do a proper book proposal where you have to write a sample chapter and really outline what each of the chapters will cover. So I was like, yeah, I've got this nailed. I'm, I'm going to, this is going to be so much easier. And then I sat down to write it. And again, as through the research process, through talking to people, you know, maybe some of the things you thought were good ideas turn out to be like, oh, that doesn't actually stack up. Or you just uncover something along the way. And it's like, this whole idea, I've got to include this somehow, or the stories that you find along the way, and then how you tie that thread. So this right. book, Rebel Cell, was really challenging in terms of like tying the strands of the narratives together, because you've got this whole bit through the early 20th century about, you know, people investigating viruses that cause cancer. And then you've got like how people find the genes involved for cancer. And then sort of the idea of like the microenvironment and and the evolutionary ideas and then getting to this point of understanding modern genetics and tumor heterogeneity and and the heterogeneity of the normal body. So how do you bring all that together in a way that weaves through right. when your starting point is like the origin of life? Um, that was that was a real challenge and I, I have to say I started because I was like, I knew I wanted to start with like one cell I had this very clever um chapter numbering I was going to go it was going to go chapter one chapter two chapter four chapter eight chapter eight, 60 yeah. you know it's going to be exponential it's going to be very very clever and then my editor said this is just really confusing <laughs> so the, the chapter the titles changed but it always wanted to go from like one cell through that sort of expanding evolutionary yeah. process 
so I started writing it, started, you know, all the cool stuff about the animals and the history and ancient remains and talked to all these cool people. And then I kind of got stuck trying to get from there into the modern genetic stuff. And so I did a fairly silly thing. I started at the end and started working backwards because I knew where I right. wanted to end with yes. all these stories of the researchers now like Bob Gattenby, who are using evolutionary approaches, um, you know, sort of the, the promises and the failures of molecularly targeted treatments, you know, criticism of perhaps today's modern obsession with precision oncology and you know, genetic shopping lists of cancer and failing to incorporate it into this ecological systems-based thinking. So I knew that was the end. Yeah. So I started writing, you know, writing from the end in. And then I was just like, oh God, how am I going to like knit these two together in the middle? So the hardest chapters were the the ones where I had to like bridge that gap from, you know, the cancer viruses stuff through to heterogeneity that was really hard yeah that that absolutely makes sense and and i can see how one of the themes that i noticed that cut through the book a few times was how often scientists kind of got it right but for the wrong reasons so there was a you know belief for a long time that cancer was contagious because it was seen to run in families for example but actually it was genetics that was the primary explanation or, or possibly some shared environmental exposure but not um not that the virus it's you know that not there was a cancer virus except in a in a small number of cases like hpv um i'm really interested in going into that you know the the last 20 30 years and that shift from precision medicine genome sequencing everything and understanding the diversity of molecular drivers but then where that you know towards the end of the book that really starts to fall off and and you make the point that that might get us 80% of the way there. But actually, this idea of a, of a war on cancer or something that we can fully understand and, and eradicate it actually might might be the wrong approach entirely. So I'm really interested in just hearing more about how much you learned of, of, of that uh, dichotomy that comes up towards the end of the book. Yeah, that I thought that was a really that was almost my sort of personal journey as well. Because at Cancer Research UK, while I was there, we came through this era of like, really into the genetic molecular idea, the, the dawn of precision medicine. And this idea that if you could just find the faulty genes, the faulty molecules in tumors and target them, that's it. This is this is the cure. This is the moonshot. This is going to get us there. And you take a long, hard look at the improvements in survival that these incredibly targeted and incredibly expensive drugs bring and that are being t sold to us really as, you know, the miracle cures, the holy grails, the cures for cancer. And you drill right into the survival benefits and it's months, it's single digit years. In some cases, like there's one paper where it's like nine days and it, like weeks. This is not cures. Uh, no. I do think like, I think these drugs are very useful. I think these drugs are very important. Um, I think that there are issues with the way that pharma companies find them. It's like, we've got enough kinase inhibitors now, guys, I think. Um, <laughs> and that the way that they they don't pay attention to the challenges of the evolution of resistance. You know, So one of the things I point out in the book is the, the similarity of the evolution of resistance of cancer to, to cancer therapy is similar to the evolution of resistance to pesticides in crop pests. And now, you know, if you're going to bring a pesticide on the market, you have to have a management plan and a plan for resistance because you assume it's going to happen. And then you're like, right, so what do we do with it? How do farmers use these 
very powerful chemicals to control the pests, but not to lead to the evolution of resistance. And right. it's like, it's the same problem. Um, so there's, there's sort of a lots of ins and outs that I go into, you know, we've got really wrong incentives for developing cancer drugs. I think, you know, you get huge rewards if you could just get yours over the line with a bit more survival benefit than the next company along. Um, there's the culture of like me too drugs, everyone chasing after the same targets because you want your own for your own combinations, all that kind of thing. But really it's about uh, a lot of the most exciting ideas to me are about how do we use the drugs that we've got? in cleverer ways that do take into account the evolutionary nature of cancer and the inevitable evolution of resistance because of what we know about heterogeneity and because of what we know about natural selection. It's like, it still works. So, um, but yeah, I think we've become so focused on this sort of genetic reductionism and forgotten to see cancer as, yeah, it's, it's more like an evolving system. And, and natural selection works on phenotype, doesn't work on genotype. And all we're doing is looking at genotype, mashing up cells, looking for mutations, you know, draw up this, this shopping list, uh, you know, the kind of genetic bingo idea of like, we got this many mutations and that's driving the cancer. And then the kind of shopping list of like, these are the targets that we need to go for. And it's just not delivering cures. And we, you know, you kind of go, well, we have got a lot of the way, you know, we're now to half of all people diagnosed with cancer today survive for at least 10 years. That's, that's a figure that's doubled um, just in the past four decades, you know, in my lifetime. But we're not making big, big gains in survival with the new drugs. I mean, immunotherapy is an interesting one. And there are some really exciting things, but those drugs don't work for everyone. And, you know, we don't, and in some cases they cause hyper progression. So again, so you've got to be careful if you're going to wake the beast of the immune system to to fight the beast of cancer. But this this like you know people overly obsessed with genetics because that's what we can measure. And you need to go back to the people in the the seventies, the eighties who were developmental biologists, tissue biologists, microscopists, taking this more systems holistic holistic. It's a terrible word, but this body-based view of an evolving population of cells within the ecosystem of the body and like think of it like that and then think about how you tackle an evolving population within an ecosystem so that that's kind of where we end i think yeah absolutely what what are some of the most exciting that you you go through quite a i think there's a whole big chunk of a chapter with bob gattenby which i thought was one of the interesting turning points of the story you also talk about the eco evo index which is a relatively recent and i thought really interesting system for classifying cancers into into different types really based on almost evolutionary properties is uh, is that what you see as the next wave where it's treating cancer as an evolutionary process and i mean i and i think you get into this right towards the end of the book but managing cancer rather than beating cancer and and what i'd also like to hear about and because I, I i actually knew that you were going to cover this when i came across it because of how good you are at storytelling that manage your cancer for the rest of your life does not have the same ring to it as war on cancer or, or beat cancer so how do we approach that from a narrative and, and storytelling perspective if that is the new paradigm yeah, that is a real challenge. We've been so driven by this narrative of the cure for cancer for over a century. You know, when Cancer Research UK first started in 1903 as the Imperial Cancer Research Fund, it's all about finding the cure. And this is what has driven us. It's like something that will get rid of cancer from our species forever. 
and like you you can't declare war on cancer any more than you can declare war on evolution it's just all multicellularity it's it's just right. not going to happen so it's like we've got to be realistic about this but then you're like well we don't have to be fatalistic and i've yeah just whinged about how overly genetically reductionist we are about our ideas but it's it's bringing together what the genetic techniques we now have the resolution we have the advances that we have in things like digital pathology to actually understand tumors as miniature ecosystems made of populations of genetically different cells kind of evolving on their own trajectories and subjected to evolutionary pressures and natural selection so it's like I think now there is potential for really exciting confluence of all these ideas to come together. So it's not that we should just stop doing tumor sequencing. It's like we should sequence more tumors, but we should sequence them in more detail over longer periods, not just like one and done. Like we took your tumor at the beginning and that's it. And that's your treatment. And now like, okay, well, that didn't work. So, um, you know, we've got to think about this as a as managing an ongoing process. So that idea of looking at the diversity of tissues, at the ecology of cancer, this kind of eco-evo thing, like, what is this environment like? What are the species of cancer cells in there? Then what is the management plan to control that? You know, cancer, it comes from our bodies. It, it doesn't have infinite escape routes. And I think it's, we're going to find the same thing as we find in evolution of species. There'll be convergent patterns. There will be routes that things go because that's just how life works. So we need to understand, like, what are the kinds of routes that cancers take? What are the incompatible evolutionary options? You know, if you've developed fins, uh, you can't develop, you know, feathers or whatever it is. Right. So it's like, what are the routes that if you go down one, you cannot get back to another? So those kind of things we can answer, I think, through more detailed understanding of genetics. But one of the things that one of the things I think that is interesting is you talk about, well, maybe all these ideas, these evolutionary ideas, they're just about controlling cancer, making it a, a long term condition. But you can apply the same ideas to the idea of a cure by thinking about, well, what does extinction look like? Like if this is a population and an environment and an ecology Let's think about driving it to extinction. What are the catastrophes and the predation and the sort of destroying the environment that we can wreak upon these rogue cells to make that population collapse? So it's not just about like nuke them from orbit. It's about how do we drive them smaller and smaller and smaller to extinction? I really like that. And it's a, it is an extended, I felt like, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt like you have either... In, while you were writing the book or or have at least lots in your life read um, books like The Selfish Gene, um, because I could see some of those ideas coming through of, of these repeated game theoretic uh, games that we need to play, essentially, and, and some of the evolutionary ideas. And, and I, I think you're right that there's a, you know, there's a, there's a reframing of the problem that it has to not just be eradication, but something a little more more subtle than that. That's the thing. And and I go back to what I said right at the beginning. It's like, this isn't a book about cancer. It's a book about life. And there's a point where I've sort of, I talk a bit about the idea of um, cancer emerging as cheating cells within a society of cells. And you're like, that's not a metaphor. Like, that is what happens. You have societies that have rules and norms. And those are established, you know, either culturally or genetically in the case of like tissues and species. And it's like, yeah, this is just how it is. Like, this is how life works. 
this is how populations of cells work. It's how populations of people work. It's how populations yeah. of animals work. And, you know, and evolution is how life works. And so I realized like, this isn't metaphors. This is, this is it. And so it's we need to understand happening. yeah, that cancer yeah. is life. It's bad life, but it's life and, and start respecting it and treating it as such. Um, I think is where I kind of get to. Yeah. To, to, to close out here, I know we're running up against time. One thing that you mentioned at the end of the book, and I, I actually might just read directly here because I thought it was really well put. Um, you said the collective effort of scientists and doctors over the past century have got us to a point where half of all people diagnosed with cancer in the UK will survive for at least 10 years. I think you mentioned that earlier. But I've come to believe that we need a complete shift in how we think about the origins, prevention, and treatment of cancer from its earliest evolution as a scrappy expansionist clone to a malignant Darwinian monster, if we're going to fill that half-empty class to the brim. And then this final question or final statement, prevention must be our first priority rather than being relegated to the bottom of the funding heap. I completely agree with this. I'm interested in whether our healthcare system is architected to do this and and if not, what changes need to be made? Because you basically advocate for completely flipping the system around. We put more funding towards prevention, followed by early detection and screening, followed by you know sequencing to model the evolution of the tumors, and and less focus towards the the very end stages. Because that's where, as you mentioned earlier, we, you spend an incredible amount of money and resources, and and often for. A matter of you know months or months or single digit years. Yeah, so I've I've been picked up a bit on the what seems like a contradiction between like well why are you saying that cancer is like an inevitable emergent phenomenon and that you can't prevent it and then you're saying well we should prevent it I'm like okay <laughs> this is where it gets challenging um, but it's about if we actually understand what is causing sad cells to become bad cells that is genuine cancer prevention research so it's not just about going around telling people like stop smoking do some exercise like put down the chips um it's about actually understanding what keeps tissue healthy so there's quite a big chunk in the book about this idea of cancer emerging from the tissue environment and i think one of the most shocking research results really of the, of the past know, decade i think in cancer um, is the discovery that even normal tissue is riddled with mutations. So by the time you get to middle age, you are a patchwork of mutation. And we kind of knew this, but we didn't really, I think, believe it. Like normal tissue, it looks normal, it's healthy. Um, but this discovery from the researchers at the Sanger, um, led by Peter Campbell, that, that even normal healthy tissue is riddled with mutations that if you found them in a cancer, you would say that was a cancer driver gene, right? And it's just in all your normal tissue. So all your cells are sad. They've they've seen some things, man. <laughs> like by middle age, like your tissue has seen some stuff. And like what keeps tissue healthy when we are younger? Like let's really figure that out. What is the mechanism by which exercise is good for us? How do we control inflammation effectively? What role does inflammation have on encouraging sad cells to become bad cells? And I think like the 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 role of inflammation in tissue health and tumor initiation progression is is something that we really need to to look at. 
But it's still, again, about like, what is the tipping point between a sad cell and a bad cell? And this idea that it's actually some kind of chromosomal catastrophe, chromosomal instability event. So like, what drives those? What triggers those? Because that's your tipping point. Because if all our tissue, by the time we get to a certain age, is kind of like messed up, that each one of us in a lifetime will only develop one, maybe two cancers. Like cancer is an incredibly rare event on a personal level. So let's find out why it doesn't happen. We're so obsessed right. with why it does, but we don't ask what is protective against the emergence of rogue clones within the tissue society of the body. And so that's like, that's a different way of thinking about prevention. It's like, that's real prevention as well as understanding what damages cells and what causes mutations. Let's yeah, find that out and avoid that. Of course, that stuff's all really important too. But like what keeps tissue healthy? We think about why we get sick. We don't really think so much about why we stay well. And I think that's uh, that's kind of the next frontier of prevention research. Amazing. I, I think that's, uh, that's a really amazing viewpoint. Um, so I'd just like to say thank you to those of you who are listening and are interested in the book. It's called Rebel Cell. You read the audiobook, don't you, Kat? I do. I spend Great. three days locked in a room, uh, not allowed to talk to anyone except myself <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> did they, um, did, I, I've heard that they're very picky where you have to say exactly what's on the page and they don't let you editorialize. Is, is that how it is? Yeah, it's yeah. it's very strict. Although, um, also, I did find some like proofreading errors in the book, so we had a. <laughs> so, apologies for that. They'll be corrected next time round. So, right. yeah, I do read the audiobook, and it was it was a real blast actually to go back and like it's like oh yeah no I really love this and I love these stories. So it's nice to get to tell them again in in spoken word. Absolutely. Well, it's it was an amazing book. I appreciate you giving me a sneak peek and uh, and also just taking the time to talk about it here. Is there anything that I missed that you wanted to cover? Or, um, and, and I, I know, know people I could can... talk about this all day, but yeah, we do. There's a few excerpts, um, audio excerpts in the latest Genetics Unzipped podcast, which I present. Excellent. So if you want to like get a little flavor of it, uh, you can head over to geneticsunzipped.com. And, uh, one of the most recent episodes has a couple of, a uh, couple of audio excerpts. Perfect. We'll also put a link in the notes so people can find it there. Well, thanks so much, Kat. And um, congratulations on the exciting book. And uh, uh, it's launching in the US from about a month from now when we're recording. So hopefully you have another big, big splash over there. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed.